This is Milestones, in partnership with WBGO Studios. I'm your host, Angelica Beener. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here joining me. Here we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. This year marks the 50th anniversary of what has been universally considered the ultimate concept album. I'm speaking, of course, of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. For this episode, I could not be more thrilled to be joined by one of the greatest guitarists of his generation, Mike Moreno. He has played with everyone from Joshua Redman to Michelle Indege Ocello, from Common to Terrence Blanchard, and many, many more. Recognized as one of the leading voices in jazz guitar, Moreno has toured extensively and recorded as a leader of his own band, playing his original music to critical acclaim. During the COVID-19 lockdowns, Moreno designed and developed a 14-week course, Standards from Film, which inspired his most recent release. The course itself dove deeply into the cultural history and harmonic evolution of 14 iconic jazz standards from the golden age of Hollywood. Since then, he has released the album Standards from Film in 2022 on the Crisscross label, available now everywhere. He is a true Pink Floyd aficionado, and I cannot wait to explore this album through his tremendous insights. Let's get into it. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. When I thought about this record, you were the first person that came to mind. So, yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of those records where even before I was 100% sure I was going to be a musician, like it was part of my life already, you know, just just through friends, you know, hanging out with friends and listening to music and, you know, yeah. So it goes all the wow. way. I, it goes all the way back to you know, junior high school with me when I, when it came onto my radar in a, in a very serious way. Wow. So, so tell me more about that. We're here talking about this now iconic album. Mm-hmm. You know, it was released March 1st, 1973. So this week, 50 years ago, <laughs> and would go on to spend, I think, 14 years or something crazy like that on the Billboard charts. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people call it, you know, the ultimate concept album. Of course, we're talking about Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. But uh, yeah, I'd love to know more about how this album came into your consciousness. For me, for sure, it was first riding in the car with some of my best friends. My my best friend Paul at the time was a drummer. And we were playing music together. We were playing like kind of heavy rock, you know, like uh, all the bands that we were listening to at the time. And it was just like covers. We were just playing all of our favorite tunes. And But he was always kind of listening to music that was beyond that. You know, I was more just a kind of like a heavy metal kid. Uh, and I didn't listen to much outside of that, other than the pop music that was on television and stuff. I mean, I knew all the Michael Jackson stuff and, you know, a lot of the, you know, Stevie Wonder and things like that that were on the radio. And I liked that music. But as a guitar player, I was playing all this kind of, you know, hard rock, kind of heavy metal stuff. And, uh, but he was listening to this album and we would just drive around and and check out the radio or he would have tapes in the car and just start playing stuff and we were listening to this album for sure during that time and and he said you know at at the natural history museum there's a laser light show we need to go you know and he had already been so uh we went and pink every week every weekend there was a pink floyd laser light show and it might have been during the week too, but I, I can't remember the exact days. But 
So we just started going like on a regular basis. <laughs> so and it was it was amazing. It was this place, you know. I um, I have some like just because I, I kind of went down this this little interview took me down a, a trip down memory lane, you know. So I was like I thinking that. about it, and uh, I I found like these kind of pictures, you know, of uh, so this was the planetarium like outside of the Natural History Museum. And this is where you would kind of walk back right down this little walkway here and then go in the front entrance and then the main entrance into the planetarium was inside. So we were going here and just laying down in the in that dome. And, you know, it was always packed. And so we would have these kind of reclining seats. So we would be in here just like totally just like looking up at this <laughs> dome. And, uh, and they would play the record from start to finish. And it was the most intense way to listen to that record. And at the time, it was, you know, I knew that there was something special about this album. I was like, nothing sounds like this. Nothing takes an, whole, uh, an audience on a journey like this. And, and it was because it was the ultimate concept album. It, the, the songs weave in, 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 in and out of each other. And especially if you think of a, a, the tunes like uh, Breathe and Time, where they do the whole song time, and then at the very end they just go back to breathe. <laughs> they, breathe. Yeah, and and it's then genius. you know, yeah, it's they're just kind of like, oh, let's go back to the, to the first song we started off. It's it's the whole album kind of it's almost like a time warp, like you're just going through like black holes and then coming out in another tune, and then you know the the songs are reborn in different keys, and they just jam on the chord changes, and and they're just like improvising. And, you know, at the time, I was like, this is way different than anything I've heard, <laughs> you know. And it was way beyond my head. Like, uh, it was over my head at the time, but I liked it. That was the, the, the whole thing with this album. It was deep if you wanted to go there, or you could just have it in the background and, and it, you could jam to this record, or you could just let it, you know, lightly take you on a journey. But if you wanted to completely immerse yourself, this was the place, <laughs> this planetarium <laughs> Like with everybody just like succumbing, like just like, yeah, like there's nothing else, no phones. This was before cell phones. Like people just went in there, laid down, probably smoked a few, you know, <laughs> a few doobies. <laughs> yeah, before they went in there, and it was just like let's just check out Dark Side of the Moon, and there there was nothing else like that. Uh, and then I moved to New York, and they were doing it in New York. It, it wasn't this cool, but it was. Um, it was at the Natural History Museum uh, in New York, too. And it was stadium seating, so it wasn't lying down. It wasn't in the planetarium. But it was still, I was like, man, this is this album is, like, beyond, you know. It's, it's, it's just transcended, like, so much. It's become so much more than just a record people put on. <clears throat> so when you're at the planetarium mm -hmm. in Houston, what are the visuals? What are you seeing while you're listening? Um, that was the main thing that that set it apart. So when I went to see it from in New York, it was just kind of like that. The screen at this planetarium was the most high tech at the time. Uh, very few museums had something like it. And you know, when I think back, I was like, man, I, there's so much cool stuff about Houston that people kind of don't know about. And and one of the things is the the museum culture, in in Houston. So this planetarium was one of the most um, kind of high definition screens. The audio was amazing, and the the lasers that they had uh, are, are the projection system 
was the, the highest tech at the time. And so they were crystal clear. Like it, it was like being in space. So it was all these images kind of like moving and it it was like a like a firework show almost, but but very slow and and I I can't really remember. I just remember it was it was super trippy. <laughs> it was so fun to watch, and even at the time, like there there was nothing cheesy about it. I, that's that's the only thing. It's like I remember when I went to see it in New York. I was like, this is kind of cheesy, <laughs> and Damn it was it. a little it was a little bit of a disappointment. But I mean that the one in Houston was it was just like wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Wow, that's amazing. And they're bringing it back. So uh, I'm going to go to Houston, uh, maybe this month or next month. And they brought it back, of course, for the 50-year anniversary. Sure. I don't know if it ever completely went away. I think they would still do it sometimes. But it, it was such a thing. And, you know, there would be this, the, the craziest mix of people there. Like, definitely Pink Floyd fans and some people that were just there to, to see it, you know. Maybe even for hear the, the album for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And who doesn't love, you know, a trippy, you know, LSD-inspired light show? I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. that's, <laughs> that sounds freaking amazing, you know? Yeah. That sounds so cool. Yeah. I think was... my first foray into Pink Floyd, I was, I was like 12. Mm-hmm. And my sister was working for uh, Columbia Sony, and she sent me all this music to camp when I was at Sleepaway Camp. Oh, wow. And she sent me a care package. Yeah, I was like, all these CDs. And the wall was in there. And with like new new kids on the block and Branford Marcellus (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, Terrence Blanchard. And then there was the wall. But I know the wall like came out in I think like 79. 79, yeah. So I had to kind of work my way backwards to um, Dark Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. And And I think one of my earliest like experiences of knowing about the record, you had told me about sinking, like they were sinking it up to... The Wizard of Oz? Dark Side of the Moon, yeah. Yeah, so when it, when I finally got a, a DVD player, you know, I, I remember when I got a DVD player and like a flat screen TV in my apartment, and one of the first DVDs I bought was like, I, I mean, I bought a lot of DVDs from my childhood, but one of them was The Wizard of Oz. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to finally check it out and see if I can sync it up. And I, and I had the CD of course, from when I was a kid, and I had the DVD now. So I did it for the first time. And of course, it was like, wow, this is crazy. But, you know, if you put anything, <laughs> you know, any movie with, you know, turn off the audio and put on a record, you know, there's going to be some coincidences. But those are pretty cool. because They it's, are uh, yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know Pink Floyd has denied, <clears throat> for, you know, any conscious ties you yeah, know, yeah. And, they're basically like, but they're like of course there's things that are going to line up they're like <laughs> it's like but it's bullshit well, why would we do that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it, it's a trip though it's really it is, fun yeah I it's think, really fun yeah yeah i think more of that so you know for our listening audience uh do you want to just describe like what we're talking about specifically so there was this i guess an urban myth right about mm-hmm. uh the synchronicities yeah, they, well, people were just saying that Dark, uh, that Pink Floyd wrote Dark Side of the Moon to sync up with Wizard of Oz. And that that's what they're, what they're saying is just as being like, why? <laughs> why would we do that? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a whole conspiracy theory that, that it was meant to be that way. Yeah. Right. But, but like you're saying, more realistic <clears throat> what 
what's likely is just that you have trippy imagery on screen, you have this trippy music, and there's some interesting overlap. Yeah, there, there's you know, like there, there's some parts in the in the lyrics that go with what's happening in the movie, like when they say like balancing on the on the biggest wave or, or tallest wave, uh, and then Dorothy's balancing herself like this, like on the fence, and and there's a bunch of them. You know, when money starts is when the when the the Wizard of Oz goes goes from black and white to color, things like that. Like that happened right on right in sync. If you get the if you start the DVD in the right place, so yeah, it's it's kind of crazy how 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 much in sync it is at certain mm-hmm. points. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've only really gotten it to be that close like a couple of times because you really got to start it in the right place. Yeah, but, it's like they say, like when the lion, the MGM lion, has to roar on the third. <laughs> on the third, the third time, time after, yeah, you got to just do it. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? You know, you're trying to like follow instructions from some like stoner, like on online on some blog. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, just like. <laughs> but I, I think that, that 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 goes with what you were saying about this being like the ultimate concept record. Yeah, it's, and in a way that it's 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 so much more than a record, right? Yeah, it's it's become just this whole myth kind of thing uh, of everybody has the, these ideas of where, what the songs are about, and you know, and it's a lot of people just listening to this record so much that they they just kind of start inventing stories or are trying to make it more than it than it actually is, which is the coolest part. <laughs> you know, it's like it's out of the hands of the band. You know, as soon as it was oh. printed. You know, it's like okay. You know, this is not ours anymore. It's this is belongs to the audience, and that they're, they're everyone's having a different experience with the music. You know, and it's taking them to different places. And so mm-hmm. that's the cool thing about the album. It's 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 so it like I get images when I when I listen to it, and some of that could date back to first hearing it. You know, so much in, in this kind of planetarium and seeing all those trippy images, but I really felt like. I was in space when I was like listening to it. It really felt like you're just on this kind of journey, just like going through tunnels, and and it's an it's an amazing record. Yeah, you're making me want to get a flight to Houston just to go to, <laughs> yeah. to experience this because I mean I, I would I would love to do something like this, especially with you know and you know take my son with me. I mean, oh yeah, that could that be would, really fun actually. Yeah, and so you you were talking about this this age where you you know you, you and your friend were checking out this uh, more rock music and stuff mm-hmm. like that in your in your background tell me about what you were listening to at the time that this record came into your consciousness like what were you checking out and then when did you start checking out jazz um at that time i was, this had to have been like 92 93 somewhere around there so i was kind of really into I was into Steely Dan at this time uh so I was kind of segueing into the jazz world with that kind of music and um a lot of a lot of Zeppelin at the time um I was listening to Van Halen I was listening to still some of the bands that I I used to listen to like Metallica and Megadeth and and Slayer and like I I love that kind of stuff and so it was a lot of uh what else was Steve Miller band I, we were checking out. Um, there was a lot of kind of spacey 70s rock. <laughs> you know, Yes, we were checking out Yes and, and um, Cream and all kinds, uh, Ozzy Osbourne. And it, it was just a lot of riding around in cars and, 
in in Houston. There wasn't much to do. We were broke, you know. So we had, you know, everybody put in two bucks for gas and let, let's drive around and listen to records. That was basically like me hanging out with, the, with some of my best friends. And uh, we would just listen to the radio and then we would put on records. See what was on the radio. And, you know, it was always kind of classic rock stuff that we were listening to. Those stations, never jazz stations. Uh, so all the classic rock stations and then classic rock was just funny because, you know, when I started listening to this record, it wasn't even 20 years old yet. So it's, it's kind of right. a little bit crazy. So 1992, yeah, the record was like 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So, and now we're talking about it like it's 50 years old. It's kind of crazy. That, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Isn't that a trip? You know, 19 years old is, is not that not, not crazy. I mean, I've done records that are 19 years old. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and they don't sound like Dark Side of the Moon, you know. Um, so... Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to think about. And then jazz, I know you went to HSPBA uh, uh, High School of Performing and Visual Arts yeah. in Houston. <laughs> a, a wide variety of, of uh, stellar alumni, musicians, artists, dancers. I know you. I, we always say like, oh, we had like Billy D. Williams. I know you guys <laughs> had like... Patrick Swayze, right? Didn't Patrick Swayze go to your school? Oh, you know, I I can't. I don't think he. I'm not sure. I don't think he did. I think I heard that. Okay, he I, might I, have. I have he might have gone there. He might be from Houston. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. when I was there, we had Beyonce, who who I mean. <laughs> it, okay, wait, wait to flex, Mike. Wait yeah, flex. <laughs> yeah. But she she. I'm just thinking like the biggest superstar to come out of that school was was definitely her. I mean, and I didn't know what she did when I was when I knew her there. She was she was Beyonce. I kind of knew she was in the vocal department. And that's about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was an incredible school. And uh, actually, that this <laughs> my girlfriend when I started going to that school, I started dating a girl, and our first date was the Pink Floyd <laughs> Laser Light Show because it was the coolest thing that I knew about at the time. Where her parents <laughs> her parents would actually drop her off. You know, because she was like 15 and, you know, I was 16. So yeah. where are you going to take them on a date other than the movies? I was like, this is way cooler than a movie. And she had never heard Dark Side of the Moon. So uh, so we went there and just like, um, yeah, maybe checked out the, the, the laser light show. <laughs> right. Maybe the, light, the light show was <laughs> But I was like, you, you know, it's like her dad, her, she had really strict parents. And I was like, oh, it's at the Natural History Museum. It's very educational, you know. <laughs> pretty romantic uh first date actually i would imagine so <clears throat> i mean i i'm the age i am and i want to go on a on a first date to this <laughs> it sounds amazing yeah and so is that also when you started getting into jazz is that when you yeah when i when i started going to that school i was already i i knew that i had to get into jazz to to be a part of the school so at the time i was like i don't know if i want to play rock and classical like i I was thinking I wanted to enhance my, you know, music theory and, and kind of knowledge about music through classical music. But when I went to audition for the school, or at least to go to a meeting about auditioning, and the Doc Morgan, the director of the program, was just like, we don't have a classical guitar program. So if you play classical uh, guitar, there's no, we don't have a place for you, unfortunately. So he was like, but you can study jazz. And, and he asked me like a couple questions about chords that I couldn't answer and he was like well you probably want to figure that stuff out before the audition and I mean I didn't know anything about music theory at the time when I went to that meeting 
And so I went to my teacher and he basically taught me how to build chords and like what, how, you know, the basics of music theory. And I started learning tunes and, and then I did the audition and got in. Do you remember what you played to get in? Yeah, I played uh, So What. I played uh, Freddy the Freeloader <laughs> and a monk tune, um, the, Well You Need It. Really? Yeah. Oh, Those are the amazing. three tunes I played. Uh, that's no small feat. I mean, coming from, you know, a background that did not include jazz at all and then playing three tunes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we school. had to play three tunes. Luckily, they didn't ask for a ballad. That, was, that would have been uh, <laughs> impossible for me to do at the time. Um, but Play yeah. slow, so what really slowly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still remembered like Doc Morgan like walking bass on the on the piano uh, for the for my solo, but yeah, it's I, I remember some things about the audition and I felt pretty good after the audition and you know and, and just by his reaction it, it, but then I went to right after that I went to a, a student concert and it was Eric Carlin was playing drums and uh, another teacher at the school named David Caceres and, and a guitar player that was going there at the time named Stefan Schultz, who was incredible. And they were in the in the main combo and they played and they were playing with Milt Hinton. So Milt Hinton was the guest artist. Oh, and wow. they were doing like Bebop and, and like some other tunes. I can't remember what else the tune but I remember when they played Bebop it was dip and I was just like and <laughs> just watching them play this music <laughs> and I was like, there's no way I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> I just left there and my mom was with me I was just like yeah I gotta think about something else and then they I got a letter and said you've been accepted so yeah because they weren't freshmen when you were listening no they were them, seniors right? they were, yeah, yeah. Eric, Eric was about to graduate yeah yeah so you he, they, they heard what we all now know is that you are <laughs> you know easily one of the greatest of, of your generation and beyond you're an incredible musician well, now I'm a, I'm a, a Hall of Famer from the, <laughs> we, me and Kendrick Scott got our Hall of Fame awards from the high school in December. That's what was funny. that like? It was really cool. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it felt good in, in that sense of because of, I still remember like walking out of the theater and being like, there's no way I'm going to get in, you know? Like, so mm. I remember that like very vividly and like how excited I was when I did get in. And, and how excited I was the first day of school, walking in with my guitar. I'd never done that before. You know, got out of Aww. my parents' car with my guitar and, like, going to school. It's like, this is different, you know. And uh, so... It's a vibe. Yeah. It, I never took it for granted, like, the whole time I was there. So, yeah. So then when that happened, I was like, okay, this, this is kind of cool, you know, <laughs> to get a... It, it's It's... It's just an award, you know, but it, it felt, you know, I've seen some of my, you know, like Eric Harlan got it and, and, and uh, so many great musicians from uh, that, that school. So mm -hmm. it, it was a little bit of like, okay, cool. And maybe I, I belong <laughs> with these guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, you do. <laughs> um, you know, when describing this record genre wise, I guess you could say that it's part psychedelic rock part mm -hmm. you know, prog rock but there's also like great improvisation on the record and yeah. so i wondered if you could talk to me about how you, you would describe the relationship between rock and jazz 
especially in the early 70s, I think of people like Larry Coryell and even Hendrix, um, you know, Weather Report. But like, how how do these genres sort of organically come together for you? I mean, it, it just seems kind of uh, at the time when, when you think of these kids and these in these bands at that time you know i mean they were just kids you know they're early 20s yeah. so you got to think of them growing up with their parents and their parents were listening to jazz um or listening to music that was at least recorded by jazz musicians so you know the studio musicians from that period in the 50s they were all jazz musicians so whether you're listening to you know frank sinatra or or something like a, a singer group like a doo-wop group like the the studio musicians could could kind of go both ways. And so I just think it was a part, like the great musicians from those time periods knew chord theory, at least could play by ear and they could improvise. And they were, those are the people recording the albums. And, and so there was a lot of cross-pollination and, and a lot of the pop artists even came from jazz backgrounds. And so I think for, you know, in the in the British rock scene, and this this album, like the the way that they're playing over it, doesn't feel. I mean, it's very bluesy, but they're still kind of playing voicings that that are coming from more more jazz kind of sounds. And even in the first tune, uh, Richard Wright, the the piano player, when he was writing the chord changes to "Breathe," like he referenced. Uh, there's an interview where he's talking about how he used a D7 sharp nine chord because he heard it in all blues from the Miles Davis record. So like if you check out Breathe, like the chord changes are just E minor. They're just E minor to, to A major. But, you know, the kind of voicings that David Gilmore is using, he's kind of using like a minor nine. like It's like a, a cluster, you know. So instead of just like a, he's putting in like these kind of tension notes that that you don't normally hear in a rock kind of setting. I mean, not not back then. You know? And and a lot of the, the 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 major chords sometimes have major sevens in them. Uh, I mean, sometimes just a triad. That's not a, a rock <laughs> progression, you know. Like, so, it, and I remember when I first saw like that interview with Richard Wright, where he's talking about this tune, and I was like, "Wow, that's like a, a direct." Like he he didn't even say, "Oh, I was listening to jazz." He was like, "said I'm, I was listening to Miles Davis, kind of blue," and I know what tune he's talking about, you know. You know, thinking about all blues. So, you know, those chords. And he said, I wanted to do something different than just the five chord, which the five chord would have been a B7. So that's mm -hmm. just that's just a minor third up. So, so he's just going, instead of going to B, he's going to D. But, it, and then kind of a diminished chord, you know, walking up to the E. So really, 
really cool and different sounding. And those were stuff, yeah. you know, like when I was a kid, I couldn't hear what they were doing. You know, I could hear this. <laughs> but it was always that chord, like, what is that? Yeah, just beautiful. And they're just kind of, that's the whole tune, really. Like, they're just right. vamping on that for, for the most part with all these different parts, the pedal steel, you know, playing those... You know those kind of parts, but it's it's with a slide and it sounds really cool. Um, but yeah, really really cool changes on all on all gorgeous those tunes. Changes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they're they're gorgeous, <laughs> and I I love the way you you've broken them down in in bite sized pieces like that. Let alone just getting a, the treat to to hear you, <laughs> you know, just live uh, solo. Um, to go back to what you said about him referencing um, all blues and that now I hear the part you're talking about. Da -da -dee -da -da, yeah, yeah, part, exactly. Right? Yeah. Got it. Right. And you know, you would, you would think that, you know, he would say maybe, you know, Oh, I was checking out bitches brew or something like that. <laughs> but the fact that he references to your point, something that came out in 1959, mm -hmm. you really helped me understand how that could be. Like you said, this is what's probably being played in the home and, and the age that they are, if we do the math, I mean, it makes sense yeah. that they would be checking out that stuff. I mean, their name alone, a long time ago, I, I found out that they named their band after these two African-American blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. <laughs> and I think even that he was uh, influenced by Booker T and the MGs and stuff like that. So there's no doubt I mean, like you were talking about just those British bands, you know, checking out the the black music from across the pond. Oh yeah, they were know. they were definitely heavily influenced by blues. Yeah. Like and and they give it up, you know, if you you talk about or see all those interviews from back then, they're just like, yeah, we just want to sound like them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Which you love, you know, I, I love the fact that they gave it up because oftentimes, you know, versus here. Mm -hmm. As we all know, there was a there was a more of a predilection to 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 steal mm -hmm. instead of to be influenced by and to give credit and almost like you can feel like it's an homage. I feel like yeah the the Brits did a much better job of of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So all over that music, I mean, the Rolling Stones, like you know. Uh, Zeppelin. If you listen to all those lead singers, it's like, wow, you can really hear what they were checking out, where they were getting ideas from. They just, yeah. you know, they just turned their amps up until they just basically blew up, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, all of the, the overdrive and, and, and on those records, it's like, it's incredible, like the, the sounds that they were getting in the studios. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about uh, David Gilmore. Mm -hmm. um, so, my understanding is that, you know, Sid Barrett was kind mm. of the the nucleus of the group up until 1968. Um, he had done the majority of, I think, the lyrics as well. Um, yeah. But he had had some um, uh, mental health challenges and I think some drug, uh, some serious drug uh, challenges as well. And... Uh, I guess they let him go or he, you know, decided, you know, to leave the band. And, and in comes David Gilmore 
uh, in that same year, 1968, they, they, um, I think there was, there was a time where they were both in the band together, oh, maybe just for like a short period of time. Cause it, there, he was basically coming in and pick up the slack, uh, and make sure that the, the parts were covered and, and, and stuff like that. How great of a player is David Gilmore where, cause you know, there's a lot of, you know, you see Rolling Stone have these like hundred greatest drummers and, you know, and, and, and some of those lists are you know, hmm. complete, you know, bullshit. But what, what are your thoughts about David as a, a, a player? Uh, I love his playing. And it's funny because it's, I've been listening to this music for so long before I was like critical about guitar itself. And going back and listening to it and analyzing it, everything he plays is so simple, but it's mm. so so melodic it's so memorable and the tone is incredible um he's not it's not like hendrix where it's, it's like hendrix is just going off he's playing like the most incredible stuff on the guitar and it's uh, it could be aggressive it could be funky it could be you know beautiful gilmore is just like uh, even when you listen to when you see him he's kind of stoic a little bit and but he's just like this quiet you know beast <laughs> And and mm. everything just has so much intensity, like the bends, and it's it's very saturated sound. So he's always has tons of reverb and delay on the guitar, which give, puts it in that space of like being very psych psychedelic. And um, but the the melodic content, every one of his solos, you can sing them. There's no like mm. point in the solo where you're like, you can't sing what he's playing, and and even if you listen with headphones on to the record, you could hear him singing uh i don't know if they had a mic in the room to capture that and they would and they wouldn't use it all the time they would just use his voice here and there to highlight some of what he was playing um and it's really cool but for sure it, it feels like he's just singing when he mm -hmm. plays and mm -hmm. it's it's incredible like it, it's so and i it's part of the reason why the band is so successful because the guitar solos are just part of the music. And in and, and that way, he kind of has to play those solos <laughs> live. Right. Because they, they, are, they are melodies. They, like, without them, this, this, the tunes aren't, aren't the same, especially when you start getting into tunes like uh, any, uh, any Color You Like and you know, the kind of jam tunes where he's just playing solos over it. But what he's playing is now the melody, you know, because it's, it's, wow. it's just a chord progression. So. And some of them are just two fives, you know, like the it, that that recurring thing of of uh, breathe, you know, it's it's on a few songs where so when they're just playing. Except they have you know like some effects going on, but um, but some of the stuff he's playing, and and of course the sounds he's getting, you know, when it's just like. Kind of these almost like Leslie sounds, you know, and, and it kind of with wop. I can't really play it, <laughs> you know. But it's like some of the the ideas are just. It sounds like somebody's singing through a through a wah pedal. It's it's mm -hmm. it's crazy. I mean, all of that. I mean, the amount of thought that he went into getting guitar sounds and it's it's crazy. Like all the stuff that he's plugged into and like how they mic'd everything and how they mixed it. Uh, it's, 
it's all about the vibe and the sound. But he, what he's playing himself is not like the most incredible guitar stuff you you by far. It's it's just so good, <laughs> just so good. The the melodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great melody, <clears throat> great placement. You know, certain things can be said of of certain jazz musicians where it's it, uh, it's not about flying up and down the keyboard or or playing the you know mm-hmm. a Coltrane solo, but the feel, you know, the aura, the vibe, like you said, and that lyricism that you were talking about. I mean, that goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're when you're in a band and, and you're trying to i mean for me there's a there's a reason why this song just stayed on the charts or or this album uh and it's just like every aspect of it was was kind of it was just singable and Mm -hmm. it's stuck in your head like once you heard you know any of those ideas it's just like oh my god you know i was gonna say there's um from breathe going into on the run Mm mm-hmm there's it's 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 so eerie to me that fast sort of bass bass synth. Yeah, you know it just. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I can't necessarily listen to this album at night and I'm by myself. Like I'm not putting <laughs> on Dark Side of the Moon <laughs> because there, it's so eerie. Or even like the clocks in time. Yeah, which which kind of reminds me of um, you know that song by the Chambers Brothers. Time has come today. It came um, out in like. They go like time, you know. Oh no, I don't know. I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah. But they they're they're going like time, and then it like slows down. You hear like the ticking, and they're saying time. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's like sixty seven, <laughs> and it just it's just something about it reminds me of this as well. I don't know. It's something about the ticking of the clocks, and even just the the concept of time, right? Because you know, my understanding was this record. Part of what made it important, too, was like dealing with social issues that they hadn't necessarily dealt with before or you mm-hmm. know, the, the lyrics had gotten more mature, more serious. But there's just something about going into On the Run and then time. It, it's it's so eerie. Like, does does this album like, well, you, you've seen it with a I mean, light it, show. It, could, a it could definitely it could definitely scare you. And I, I think that was the their intention that like some of the songs were about fear, fear of death and fear of you know, um, you know, uh, Roger Waters' fear of flying and, and things like that, and and they really kind of tried to scare you, I think, or or mm-hmm. at least tried to make you feel their own fears, like at the time uh, of of things they were feeling, like politically or or just like actual fears of um, of traveling so much and 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 you know, and yeah, that was just something you know. Uh, Roger Waters was was scared of was like dying in a in a plane crash, especially especially at a time where, you know, it was happening to, to big stars uh, here and there, you know. So um, oh, that's right, yeah. But yeah, there's some yeah. T- some I think in that that song actually there's like a some plane crash or explosion like crash sounds, and that was all all meant to kind of like be, you know, just like almost reading his mind. Amazing. But yeah, the way they did all that stuff with the uh, the sequencer, so they would, they, you know, that, you know, that that sequence of notes, it was, you know, them just playing it into a sequencer, and then hitting record, and then and then it would loop it back, and they can control the speed, and then they would put that through an oscillator, and like just the effect was 
it was incredible. <laughs> but yeah, I remember like, being a kid, like watching that in the laser light show and just like tripping out, you know. <clears throat> yeah. And then the like Nick on that fast, that hi-hat, like with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's I mean, it's incredible, but it's it's terrifying. <laughs> but like you said, I, I guess it's because you know, to your point, that those were like real feelings, real fears that they were able. I mean, it's incredible that they were able to trans translate and transfer that into mm -hmm. the music and make you feel that too. Yeah, and it, it it's kind of cool that they, the way the album is, like you can skip over that stuff and just listen to the songs sometimes. You know, there's, so there's a lot mm -hmm. of segues. Um, so there were, I think there were for sure moments where I just wanted to hear the the songs, and I would skip that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, but yeah. there was some times where you just wanted to completely hear the album. I mean, that, that goes to what you were saying at the top, which was like, <clears throat> you can go as deep as you want with this record. Like, yeah. you can kind of go surface and get something amazing out of it, and then, like, go deep and be teleported to, you know, Mars or something. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That song, Great Gig in the Sky, mm -hmm. the Great Gig, it, it feels like it's um almost like a, a like a, a little reprieve after after time, but it's got that amazing um, uh, slide guitar. Do you like slide guitar? I love it. Yeah, but that's pedal steel, so that that's the like the lap oh. steel. So when it when it's flat, mm -hmm. I can't play that, but I wish I could. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the most incredible sounding instruments ever. It is. Oh. It's amazing. And they, so what, what, they use it all mm -hmm. over this album. So that's called a steel? Pedal so steel. Pedal steel. Yeah. That's different from a slide. Yeah, a slide, like you can, I don't have, I lost all of mine. Uh, or there might be some around here. But a slide, you can, you can use one on the guitar, but it'll just never have the same response that a pedal steel will have. But also a pedal steel, you can tune to specifically get chords that you can slide up and down. Uh, and on the guitar, it's tuned different, so you can't really get the same kind of voicings in, on the guitar. Oh. So, but a pedal still, you can get a, a bunch more notes in there, and and you can kind of tune it the, in a certain way to where it, it just sounds incredible. You you can't really do that with a guitar. Got it. Yeah. Okay. But it's yeah. usually triads. Like they're usually moving triads around and six chords and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. like on that record you can it, but it just sounds the pedal still just sounds way better than, than uh, the guitar for that kind of thing ah, yeah there's even a documentary on this album like the classic albums series and they, they showed uh, David Gilmore playing it playing those parts and he's sitting down at the lap still and, and with a slide and doing it that that moment where uh Claire Torrey sings that vocal <laughs> part on, on Great Gig in the Sky. It, it kind of brought to mind, I mean, in a very different context, mm -hmm. it, but it kind of brought Abby to mind with the, oh, yeah? the Max album, the We Insist album, huh. where she, she screams. It's like that guttural, visceral, just like, <laughs> just that, that scream. And I, I always wonder, I was like, I wonder if she checked out, you know, Abby Lincoln. But do you, I mean, it, it, it is so like, it's, it's wild, like her performance. Like, what, it's great. You... Uh, I, I watched like a, a interview with, a, like of this, of that track. 
where Richard Wright is talking about it, because it was basically like his thing, where he went in on, and just started playing this song on the piano. And then they just started adding to it, first the, the, the pedal steel, and then he had the idea to add vocals onto it, like just an improvised solo. And so they, they, the track was already finished, and that was the last thing they were doing. I think they did it during the mixing. So the, the track was pretty much already done. They were just trying it. And, and she went in there, and it was like one take, and then she came out, and she was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and they were like, what are you talking about? That was incredible. And she, she came out of there just like, yeah, that was, that was terrible. Like, uh, she, she thought she overdid it. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, she, she apologized when she walked into the control room. <laughs> <laughs> Little did she know, she like, you know. Yeah, and they were like, no, way, we're keeping that, like, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's <clears throat> so good. She has, like, this, this, this Janis Joplin kind of tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's, like, flying oh, but she's, all Oh, yeah, she's hitting the- every change and, like, there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's beautiful, yeah. It, and it really... It just adds, like you said, it just, it just adds this other sauce to the song that that wasn't there. I mean, that's that's amazing. There, as musicians, it's one thing, but then just like their producer hat that they wore mm-hmm. for this record is 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 unbelievable. Like knowing what it what little touches it needs, you know. Yeah, kind of you know, saxophone solos and like you know, there was a lot of stuff they they added. Um, yeah, just trying stuff out, and, you know, like. That, that really worked, you know, and that make the album what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. How rare is it to have a rock song in seven? Oh, yeah, that's true. Money <laughs> is in seven. Uh, it's really rare. I mean, I can't really think of of any other ones. I'm sure there, there are some out there, but like, um, and there's there's been a few in history where there's like a, a mixed meter, but maybe changing meters. But this one just—it's just seven, like in your face. Like it, even the the way it starts, like with the—it's like seven sequences of 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 money being exchanged, like a cash machine and like thrown in a in a bucket and things like that. But even that's in seven, like you know, like all those sounds are seven sounds that repeat, and then it, it sets up the meter. So um, yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, it's very like seven. We are. In seven, but like, <laughs> but at the time, nobody was doing that. So, I mean, there was, you know, take five. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and that was kind of very smooth, like a five, almost felt like a three, but this was just like, you know, very seven, four. They, they said yeah. it's seven, eight, but I, I hear it's just seven, four, but seven, mm-hmm. eight, I think of as being a faster, like seven, but they, they describe it as being in seven, eight. But I, it's just in seven. So, um, right. but yeah, it's pretty rare. And it's a blues. It and, a, and it's a, just a blues in seven, really. Like a minor blues. You know, right. may, maybe they were popular, like where they were, you know, like New Orleans, that, that group, Ellis Marsalis. And, you know, they were playing stuff in odd meters, but it, it wasn't mm-hmm. like the being talked about so much, you know. I mean, I, I think that's a great, <clears throat> great tune. And to your point, it it is a blues. Like I... I did. I never. I didn't hear it. So it sounded bluesy. Yeah. But yeah. It's. 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 Yeah. Actually, kind of. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's. Not, it's not like a tra- traditional blues. Or I mean, I mean, like you know. But it. But it has that thing where it does. It does go to the five chord. You know. Um, mm-hmm. Where uh, like. 
Uh. It doesn't really go to the four chord, but it, it I guess it's not not really blues, but it, it does do that kind of like a uh, yeah. where, where it goes to the five chord and then right. you know uh, and then back to the one chord, but it doesn't really ever go to the five chord. So it's not really like a traditional blues or anything, but it just it has that that thing, you know, uh, yeah. and just a, a killing bass line, <laughs> you know, like one it, of the most really melodic is. bass lines. Yeah. And because it's <clears throat> funny, you know, I think about that time and just how, because that was the single when it came to the U.S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think we, sh- we should definitely give an honorary mention. I don't want to jack up his name, but uh, Bashkar Manan, who oh. uh, was the... Um, the EMI executive. Oh, I know. I, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, um, when you hear about the great, you know, record men, his name tends to, I think, escape us. I mean, especially um, him being also, you know, an Indian man, you know, mm-hmm. a, man of, and a man of color. You know, I had never really known as much about him as some of the other the record men that we think of, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, Capital was, you know, not doing very well. And um, he was at EMI in the UK and um, had sort of brokered this this deal, you know, uh, with the US and Money was the, the first single. And, you know, I, I just think that's dope. Um, and for that to be like the song that they lead with, mm-hmm. you know, on this yeah. album, I, I think that's kind of great. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's not... It's not even common to have a tune like that in seven, but for it to be on the radio, like on the charts, is a a whole nother thing. I mean, the only other band from that time period that could do something like that was like Rush, you know, where they had like songs in seven and and different and and five. And and the music is so good and they're playing it so strong that you just don't even notice. You're just like, Mm -hmm. it just sounds like four, you know, or it sounds different, but. The the, the, mel- the melody is so strong that you don't really you can sing it without even knowing that you're singing an odd meter, and so yeah, that's that's another great band. It's like Rush, I'm not incredible. That hip to them. Oh my god, that's some of the most amazing tunes ever written. Yeah. Wow. Okay, you're gonna have to you're gonna <laughs> have to send me some some yeah. stuff. Brad Melda just does a version of one of their tunes, just a section of it. It's the most. The, one of the coolest sections of one of their tunes, and he makes a whole like eight-minute piece out of it. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah, on his newest album. But yeah, the songs are are incredible. Not all of them, but the good ones are are incredible. <laughs> you know, and you know every band has, you know, their their songs, and that but their best songs are incredible. Well, you brought up it's interesting. You brought up Meldow. I think about you know jazz in the last. I'll say 20 years um, where you'll have um, jazz musicians playing, you know, Radiohead tunes or Bjork or Rush, you know, in this case. And you uh, were part of an album that was called uh, Jazz, jazz Side of the Moon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jazz Side of the Moon with um, drummer Ari Honig and mm-hmm. uh, Seamus Blake on saxophone. And Samuel Hell on uh, on keyboards on on organ, 
for um, Chesky Records. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? That came about, I was, I had just toured with Josh Redman's band, which had Sammy Hell on, on keys. And so we were coming off the road. We hadn't played in a while. Um, I think that, that was 2005 to 2006. And so I hadn't really seen a lot of Sam. And he just called me out of the blue one day. Um, so yeah, I, that came out in 2008, right? So mm -hmm. probably somewhere in 2007, he calls me and, and says, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm, I'm in town. But so I show up at Fat Cat and we rehearse. And, and he's like, this is a, it's a project. You know, it's going to be all, we're going to re-record all the music from Dark Side of the Moon. And I'm going to do the arrangements. And so it was a, a definitely a, a Chesky concept record of just redoing that record, but with kind of jazz arrangements and jazz musicians. So at first I was like, oh man, this is going to be bad. <laughs> and because it's just like if somebody says, we're going to do songs in a key of life again, but like all jazz arrangements. And Except this this was a little bit easier because it was like, okay, well, a lot of these songs are just jam tunes, you know? And it's not as huge of a hit record as, as Songs Cave Life, but it is, it's one of the most iconic records. So I was like, okay, and these are great musicians, so it's going to be cool. And it was. <laughs> and it was one thing that we just, we really just went in there and rehearsed for like an hour and a half. The next day we recorded the album. And that was it. It was all what? just full takes and and one one microphone because that's the way that Chesky Records. Um, you know what? Um, I have it here. I have they, there's like a diagram inside of the album of how we were set up. I would um, love to see that. Yeah, like, hold on. Let me grab it. And it's funny because a lot of people think that this is my record, or or they they think that it's Sammy Hill's record. It's just all of our names are on it, like. Sam, right. Sam did the arrangements, um, mm -hmm. but it, you know it's it's not really his record either. It was just he took the gig. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, check this out. Like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And there's the mic out in front. Yeah. There. So we set I up see. around it. So that's it. I mean, it was we we did it, and I didn't really remember anything about it, and then it just came out. And people always mention this record to me, like everywhere. I go, it's like, oh, I love that Jazz Side and Moon record. And I just kind of giggle because, you know, it was one of those things where it could have been really, really bad. <laughs> yeah, it could have gone another way, right? It yeah, definitely yeah. could have. Yeah. I mean, did you all, what was the secret to, because I, you know, I checked it out a few times, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think it's really good. I mean, I think it's a wonderful uh, I mean, Seamus kind of really does a great job on it, Seamus Blake. Um, and and Sam, you know, because it's organ and it it, it has all the, and it was recorded in a church, it just has this vibe. Um, I'm, I just kind of, this was back when I, I didn't really use much effects at all. And so I'm basically playing with just a, a straight tone uh, in this church, which is super echoey and, and, and reverby. And so all of the, the echoes on the album I mean, I'm using some effects, but most of it is natural echo. So they were, re they were putting the sound out in the church in different places. So they were recording, and it was going through the board and then being uh, broadcast back. So then there was natural delays. 
And they were doing stuff like that, like during the recording. I mean, yeah, Chesky is it's, it's a cool label, you know. Yeah, it's kind of just two I, hippie I, guys that were like, we're going to do all our <laughs> recordings in this church in Chelsea with one microphone. It's so successful. Like you would think that that could be a disaster um, for so many reasons. Like and also <laughs> just like how echoey a church is, but it adds to because I was I was going to ask you that. Like, how did you manage to tap into? Because on this record, you hear the mystique. You hear, like you said, the reverb and the echoes. And it, it still has this dark, eerie kind of vibe, even though you guys weren't using sequencers and running it through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you guys were managed to do that. I mean, what the one thing is we had all heard that record a million times. You know, shame is for sure. <laughs> Uh, I had a history with it, although I hadn't listened to it in years. Uh, and even now, like I, I kind of revisited the album. I was like, wow, I'm hearing all this different stuff that I didn't really hear before. And, you know, I'm kind of excited to hear the the remix of Dark Side of the Moon to hear like even more stuff there because they're, the band themselves are saying there's stuff that got lost or, you know, just old tapes, you know, third generation tapes of, you know, pressings and things like that. So... Mm-hmm. But yeah, we had all checked out the music and have a history with that. I, our thing was just like, let's try not to ruin at least the vibe. Like, we'll never make it as deep as Dark Side of the Moon. Those guys were in the studio and and together as a band, like coming up with ideas. Like, there's no way you can right. ever, with one rehearsal at Fat Cat and then, <laughs> and then a, <laughs> a live session, and in any way touch that. So it was just more like, let's just jam the tunes and and not ruin it as much as ah. we can, you know? So, <laughs> but there was not like a, any any heavy thought like put into it. I don't know how much time Sammy Hell put into it. And I talked to him last night, actually, just coincidentally, because um, <clears throat> we, and I had him, I've only talked to him once in like the last, I don't know, six years before wow. that. And so I called him. We had a mutual friend that passed. And then uh, so I called him about that. And I was like, man, coincidentally, I'm doing this interview tomorrow about Dark Side of Moon. And then he just kind of giggled. He's like, oh, yeah, we did that record. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that was about it. That was the extent of the conversation. <laughs> right. I mean, it's one of those things where I get it. Like, you know, you giggle and, the, you know, <clears throat> it's like Dark Side of the Moon, Jazz Side of the Moon, you know. But yeah. it's thankfully, and I think because of the caliber of musician that you guys are and like you said the the not going into it because had you guys probably over done some overthinking it wouldn't have been what it ended up being it would have been a little bit terrifying too like it was just better to just do it you know there was no time yeah. to think about it like even for sam i think he did all those arrangements the day before the rehearsal there's this really funny moment in uh when you guys are doing money and Seamus quotes, we're in the money <laughs> on his solo. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic Seamus. Yeah, just, you know, it it made the album, but like, you know, but these high caliber musicians like playing on, you know, a line or like doing, you know, it just, it, it's it's a great record. It's it's great, you know. You know, and he's, he's now like, he's playing with Roger Waters. You did tell me that. Yeah. That's right. Because so, he's doing a farewell tour, right? Yeah, so he was playing with Roger. I don't know how he got the gig. And I don't know if that album has anything to do with it, but it would kind of be cool if it did. At least somebody got something from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and exactly. he sounds great. And of course, it's just like, yeah, if you had Seamus on Dark Side of the Moon, it would, it would have been... Ooh. Maybe it would have been too good. 
you know, like it's almost better that it was this kind of really bluesy sax, kind of like almost a little bit out of tune, yeah, and, uh, kind of hard, really harsh tone. But there's some moments on the record too where that tenor player is, I can't remember his name, where he's playing some really beautiful stuff too. Uh, really mm-hmm. soft, and it's almost like wow. That's it. Almost sounds like Joe Henderson for for just like a couple of notes, like really beautiful kind of additions, like ad libs in the background. Mm. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um, I wanted to tell you about because I remember I was telling you there was like a couple of Stevie Wonder like um, intersections <clears throat> with Floyd. At least, th- so this is me. Oh, being okay. Theorist. Mm-hmm. Total conspiracy theory stuff. But the artwork of the album, right, that, mm-hmm. you, that you have displayed. Yeah. If you look at music of my mind, if you look at the vinyl, the, mm-hmm. the gatefold, there's... Oh, I've never seen the, the vinyl. I'm going to... I'll take a picture of it for okay. you and send it to you. It's, it's exactly... It's almost exactly that. Like the really? pyramid with the rainbow shooting out of it. I forget the guy's name who did the, the art design. Guitar, yikes! I can't think of his name. You're talking music on my mind. That which record were you talking about? Yeah, yeah, music of my mind. Yeah, which comes out in '72. Right. So I'm like, okay, '72, '73. You know, they both have this pyramid with this rainbow. I thought that was really interesting. And then I thought about that first album that Floyd did when Sid was still in the band. um, oh, Piper, the yes. that's their first record. Um, Piper what? at the Gates of yeah, Dawn. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a song on Stevie's Plants album called mm. Power Flower. Yeah, and he says, right? He's like Pan. He's like Pan is my name. I live outside the door. I have to keep the score of things around you. And then he says, fire and air, earth, water, I prepare. I am the piper at the gates of dawning. Hmm. And then he goes into, it, it. you know, it's not magic, it's not madness. <laughs> but I was like, oh. So I started like kind of doing a deep dive. So I guess it's it's a book that came out. Like it was a book, a children's uh, book that Sid uh, Barrett, it was like his favorite children's book, Um but Pan was like the god of the the Pan Piper or something like that. I just thought it was interesting that Stevie quoted that. Huh. Uh, so who knows, you know? I mean, all of that music, I, I'm sure, I, I for sure know that they were into Stevie. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure Stevie, just, there's no way, when something's that popular on the radio that you can't really avoid it <laughs> after a while. So I'm sure that album of, of any of the Pink Floyd albums, Dark Side of the Moon, came onto his radio, radar, but he might have even heard the earlier records. I, I didn't yeah. really hear any of that early stuff until way later. I mean, I was when I was in the Pink Floyd, it was Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. Even, even The Wall was maybe equal until it's, I started going to those laser light shows. Uh, but The Wall... And then, of course, Wish You Were Here. Those were like the three albums I was really checking out. And those are the songs that were always on the radio. You know, like you couldn't avoid them. Like they were on the radio every night. Every time we went out, you know, the classic radio stations were playing those songs. So, uh, um, okay. Yeah. But Wish You Were Here, you know, it's funny. I, I, I saw Pink Floyd in 1994. And what? yeah, I, 
this was back at the time. So my same friends that I would drive around with listening to this record and first took me to the Laser Light Show. Also, Paul is the, the one who got me into jazz. He's the one that played me, you know, Tony Williams for the first time uh, with Alan the, Holsworth. Your drummer friend? Yeah. And so, you know, at his girlfriend worked at uh, a grocery chain called Fiesta in Houston. And she worked for Ticketmaster. And she was in the booth and she would pull tickets before they went on sale. She could like, so all of those front row people, they were either like super rich or just like, you know, the, the workers <laughs> that were working for Ticketmaster that knew the managers because the managers could pull, not, not the regular employees. So we were, we went to see so many shows like fourth row, third row, first row, center stage, kind of things like that. Um, like who? Like who did you go check out? Uh, I saw Van Halen. We saw Steely Dan. We saw, um, of course, oh Pink God. Floyd. Pink Floyd was the best tickets we had uh, of all of them. We had center stage, front row. I mean, Gilmore was like right there. And I still remember it. I don't remember most of the concert because they, they were playing a lot of the new music, which I didn't recognize. Of course, I was like more into the old records. And mm -hmm. uh, old records, I mean, at the time, they were like, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, not even not 20 even. years old. <clears throat> so, right. but that's, that's old for a band, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Most people do not produce hit records for more than 20 years. So, uh, but that show is the only show in Pink Floyd's history, which I just found out. I didn't know this until like two nights ago. Uh, that's the only show in Pink Floyd's history that ever got rained out. And that's what I remember about the show the most is how disappointed I was that it got rained out. What I had forgotten is that it got rained out an hour and 40 minutes into the show. So I actually saw an hour and oh, 40 minutes. I don't remember yeah. that. I remember them playing Breathe and like certain songs. Uh, but I remember it being rained out way earlier than it was. But they were almost done. So um, it was an outdoor stadium? Kind it was thing, at Rice like Stadium. And they never played Houston again after that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm so glad I went. But we had, that was, all I remember is like, finally, I'm seeing Pink Floyd and we're front row center stage and it fucking got rained out. And it rained. <laughs> oh my. And, and they were playing. Center. I mean, it was at the height. It was at the climax of the concert. So they were getting to the real big hits. And they were playing uh, another, brick in the, another Brick in the Wall part two. And it was the heaviest thing I've ever heard. Like, and I just listened to a recording of it. Somebody, there's a few recordings of that concert on YouTube. Just the audio. What? Yeah, just people in the audience for the audio. But there's one where there's a guy who's sitting like just a few rows behind us, center stage, 11th row. And uh, it sounds incredible. Like just, and they're playing that tune and the bass and the drums just sound like the heaviest thing I've ever heard. And mm. way, way, way heavier than the album. I mean, they're rocking out big time. And... Ooh. And then the next song they start is uh, Run Like Hell. It's another older, older tune of theirs. And it just stops. You, the, the, there's this guitar part that has all this delay, like kind of slapback delay. Um, and it's timed and, and it creates this really cool effect. And all of a sudden you just hear all the delay go away and it's just guitar, like with a really thin tone. And then, <laughs> and then he goes, <laughs> de don 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 all right, that's it. No. 
Because, <laughs> I mean, all the electricity was, was shut off. I think they, they started getting shocked, like some of the piano player and the guitar, uh, David Gilmore had been, already been shocked. Like, because it was raining okay. and, and the wind was blowing and it was blowing on stage. And I remember that. I was like, man, it's just a matter of time before, yeah, you know, yeah. They, they, they call a concert. And they were still trying to play it. And you could hear stuff malfunctioning and like the delays were going off and then the keyboards would drop out. And they had already stopped a song and, and they were like, we can't do that tune. We're going to move on to the next one. And then they were trying to finish the show. But yeah, but then after a while, they, the, the actual manager of the band pulled the plug, like literally. Okay. And, and it's just like, I'm not, you know, you guys are going to like, kill yourselves. You're going to get shocked. And so they, yeah. they, they cut the sound and then that was it. He just looked at the audience. He was like, really sorry, but we gotta, we're going to call it. Oh, man. Yeah. I think about that Diana Ross concert in Central Park. Uh, I think it was like early 80s, like 80 years now, 82. I don't remember. But it's like she's just, I mean, it's just like torrential <laughs> rain pouring yeah. down. And she's just, you know, she's doing her Diana Ross thing. And, and it's, it's, it's iconic. It's like, it's what made it iconic. But I wonder, like, man, like, now that I now that I think about it, that was probably really dangerous for her to be out there like that. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's one thing if you're singing into a microphone. It's another thing if you're playing a guitar that's plugged into, plugged into yeah. <laughs> a million, <laughs> yeah, um, or or even at the keys. You know, like the keys are a little bit safer. But there's playing guitar while you're standing in a puddle of water and you're connected by a cable into like all these amplifiers and like direct <laughs> into generators, probably. Uh, extremely, extremely it, dangerous, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually was thinking about her band, like, yeah, for the record. I was like, yeah. I was thinking about her band, but also... No, but if she touched the microphone stand and she was standing in water, then it's the same thing. But if she was just singing into it, she's pretty oh, safe, yeah. Gotcha. But yeah, the, I mean, the fact that they tried to stick it out, you know, I mean, but nowadays, they have, like, big, like, um, like, uh, overhead, uh, what do you call those canopies? Well, they like they that had now. that. It was just the wind. It was the wind was okay. blowing the water onto the stage, like 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 in. It was crazy. It was That's a huge so storm, nice. and and on the recording you could hear it. It's just like like all the thunder in the background. It was it was a huge storm. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and then oh we were gosh. just like. You know, that many thousands of people like trying to walk back to their car in the rain. It was it was crazy. Yeah. And luckily, oh it was God. it was that far into the set, so people were just like, "Yeah, let's let's get out of here." Uh, otherwise, yeah. you know, if it was at the beginning, they would have been pissed, and who knows? It's it's, it's, and... it's Pink Floyd, so it wouldn't have been as bad as maybe another band. But you know, people right. people lose their mind when they want to see the band and they can't. Yeah, I, I mean, just <clears throat> you having front row second. Uh, I'm sorry, oh, it was crazy. Center seats, and it gets rained out. But like you said, you got to see probably eighty percent of the show. Yeah. I mean, like you said, they were probably about to really get into. Yeah, there the were there was stuff in the set list they didn't get to, like comfortably numb and like big big hit songs. But they had mm -hmm. played a, a, at least like four. They played money. They played breathe. They played uh, uh, wish you were here. And, and when they played mm -hmm. wish you were here, that's when you realize that's their biggest song ever. I mean, the, the crowd went insane. Wow. A lot yeah. of people argued that that's the superior record. I mean, I don't know. I don't get into those debates. But um, do, do you think it's a better album? Better um, is also very subjective. But I think it's, it's a more commercial 
uh, like that that song especially it's it's just oh my god it's time when you when you hear them playing it live like i listened to that whole concert not the whole thing i sk- skipped over it until <laughs> found my favorite tunes but like when they play that um i felt like i was there i was like wow i remember the feeling of being there when they started this tune and hearing the audience freak out um and you realize it's it's one of the greatest classic rock songs ever written i mean it's it's any anybody uh, can be into it you know a 40 year old guy with long hair or a 13 year old girl in the suburbs that's just you know crying in her room like everybody can hear that song and and mm-hmm. dig it it's mm-hmm. yeah it's like it was the one of the most requested songs to learn when i used to teach guitar to, to beginners you know Everybody wanted wow. to learn that song because it, it's you know just that opening line. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a favorite song on this record? On Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. I. It's hard, but I I really like uh, us and us and them. Yeah, it's a dark, a beautiful and dark tune. It, it almost gets into that kind of like, you know, because it has those major minor seven chords. Or, or at least one of them, you know, in there where it's, it's uh, uh, you know, where, it, you know, that kind of, those, those sounds, you know. You know, that kind of thing. Th- those chord changes. Um, but yeah, just like hauntingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost like kind of film noir, you know, because of those major that major seven chord. Um, yeah, just like spooky. <laughs> yeah, and the climax, um, uh, the chorus of that tune is is just like it's at the end of the out. Well, no, it's like midway. It's almost but, at the end. I think it's like yeah. the penultimate <clears throat> song, possibly, because I think after that is brain damage and. Yeah, brain damage yeah. is is another kind of. Starts quiet and then hits a huge climax, but yeah, they they start getting to a point towards the end of the album where it's just you know, you can feel it getting to yeah. its its climax, you know. Yeah, that arc <clears throat> is is deep. I mean, they I, my understanding is that it was written originally for a, a movie of uh, called Zabriskie Point. Um, the, the album that um, <clears throat> no us and them. Oh right. Yeah, there's one of them. Yeah. I think that's the one. Is uh, yeah, it was written for a film score, and then the, the guy yeah. thought it was too sad. He was like, "This is too sad." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, they yeah, do yeah. it. They they do it. They imitate him in an Italian accent. So he must be Italian. Uh, this right, is too sad. Right. <laughs> yeah, like in the film, apparently, like did not do well at all, and then mm-hmm. they sort of reworked that tune. They must have known they had a gem on their hands, and then they kind of rework it for dark side and it's 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 one of yeah. the most pensive uh, yeah and that whole like when was the last time you were violent oh yeah oh they interview like uh all their friends and staff and stuff yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's, it's just what rock album has a song like that on it it's, it's more like mm-hmm. something you would hear like in 2000 rather than in 1973 you know like you'd hear that like on Radiohead or like Tom York or something. Ooh, and that I could I could now that's another rework I could hear. I could <laughs> hear them do it. I mean, I know they don't cover a lot of stuff, but 
I could I could hear that. Yeah, so I mean the songs are so, you know, melodic and and you know, the chords are great. You don't really have to change anything. I, I, I matter of fact, I don't think we when we did that jazz side of the moon thing, we didn't really change any of the chords that I can remember. Yeah. Not really, yeah. I, I mean, there were some like time signature things, but mm -hmm. other than that, it, I mean, it felt very like true to. I have to go back and music. listen to it. I haven't, I haven't heard it. I, I don't remember what we did, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of like put it on the shelf. I was like, cool, we did yeah. that. All right, it's we'll a see thing what we did. Yeah, yeah. But what, how do you feel about? <clears throat> um, I know there was a wave where there was a lot of, you know. Of rock being explored in jazz music. Yeah, um, when I moved to New York, it, it seemed that way. Like Radiohead and Bjork, people were really into that when I moved here. Yeah. Um, and that's when I got hip to both of those uh, artists. Like Bjork, I, I didn't hear until I moved to New York. And mm. I, I think the, the segue was like, like someone in love. You ever heard her sing that? Um, but that was, I think, one of the first times I heard Bjork. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, this is a pop singer singing a jazz tune, like, and not even hiding it. Like, it wasn't like right. a rock arrangement. It was just like, oh, it's her duo with harp, like, and they're just singing a standard. <laughs> it was yeah. incredible. Um, and then, you know, Radiohead, it was like, oh, wow, I can hear, like, all this harmony in, in this music. Like, no wonder jazz musicians like it, you know? Yeah, it was... That's amazing that <clears throat> you heard, you started off as a serious, like, rockhead. Then you become a jazz musician, and then you're hearing later rock through the lens of jazz. Right, yeah. I mean, and even when I listen to this music now, like, I, I hear it still, it, as long as there's harmony there, like, I still hear it like it, it's it's a jazz tune, you know? And, and, and in essence, like, all these great classic tunes, you can break them down and, 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 and just play them simply and you don't have to reharmonize them or anything like that. Like the, the core changes are great. Um, yeah, a, a good song is a good song, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and you, the same as like a lot of the jazz standards, not, uh, not all of them, of course, but some of them, like My Foolish Heart, they, they're not really jazz tunes. You could hear them in a doo-wop band. You hear them played by country music artists. You hear them played by, of course, you know, the jazz artists and you hear them played by kind of pop orchestras and stuff. Um, so they're not really, they could, they're just great songs, you know, depending on how you play that, like how the band plays them and determines what, whether or not, you know, it's a rock tune or a jazz tune or something. A lot of the great rock tunes, like you can play them in a jazz context, like Nirvana songs and, and, Almost any any band, as long as the song is good, like it works, you just you just change the vibe, <laughs> you know. Right. It's good yeah. melody, and maybe the lyrics might sound weird in a different style, but like, you know, if they're good lyrics, they sound good no matter what. Mm. Mm hmm. And I think this was the first time Pink Floyd ever put the lyrics on an album, like printed in the in the design, like when you opened it. I think oh, it was wow. was Dark Side of the Moon because it was the first time. You know, since Sid left the band, that that mm -hmm. Roger Waters and the whole band were just like, we finally found our 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 new direction, and we feel confident because they were just searching before that. You know, I, I think metal might be the closest to them really starting to feel like okay. Yeah, metal had some cool stuff, uh, 
and they were yeah they were starting to feel like they 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 were starting to write song, songs that would kind of be on an album like Dark Side of the Moon. But yeah, for, I mean, for a couple of years, I think they were just kind of jamming and <laughs> seeing what would happen. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I couldn't imagine, you know, if you're head, the, the leader, the founding member of the band leaves and he was writing all the music, you know. And we were just like, <laughs> oh, shit. We're like, <laughs> what do right. we do now? <laughs> um, but you, you, you developed this course um, over the pandemic, right? Um, yeah. Standards in film. And I, I think, when you were just describing, you know, when I was asking you about how you feel about rock music being interpreted through jazz, you know, musicians, and you were saying, you know, good music is good music and how these tunes can sort of um, shapeshift based on the interpretation or genre. I mean, th that's sort of the foundation. Well, that's part of what you're teaching, right? In the, in the, um, in the standards course. Part of it um, is... The impetus, right? Part of it is, yeah, a lot of these songs were not originally conceived as jazz tunes. Um, the other part of it is that you can make them sound completely different with with, with harmonic substitutions, not reharmonizations, but just like, you know, reworking the inner voicings of, of any song to, to kind of sound like it's going to be on a in, a in a club where Charlie Parker's playing, or it's going to be on a Chet Baker album, or it's going to be a Miles Davis album, or a Coltrane record. So all these songs are like malleable, and and can sound much different without changing the integrity of the tune. And then some of them could be sung in 1944 by Dinah Shore, and sound like Broadway. And then, you know, 50 years later, Bjork sings it exactly the same. Doesn't really change much about it, and it sounds like a 93, you know alternative rock album <laughs> it mm -hmm. the songs are just timeless so a good song is, is a good song this depends on the production it's just like wow this is i'm just listening to a jimmy van Heusen song that was written in the 40s for you know a movie um yeah so it's it's kind of incredible like how modern some of the songs back then can still sound and 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 when you look at this you could scale back all of these songs and just make them sound like standards if you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I could hear us and them in like a, a Bette Davis you know, <laughs> black and white movie. You know, you can like the melody. It just sounds like something from <clears throat> that could easily fit into one of those films. Yeah. No, they're great. They're great songs. I, I like the fact uh, of how the, the album starts and ends the same way. It's like it starts with a heartbeat and and then it ends with it closes with a heartbeat. I, I can't let you go without talking about Wayne Shorter for just a second. Oh, man. Yeah, that was just. Um, yeah, yeah. Yesterday was a rough day. Anything you want to share? I mean, I know it's it's such an immense. It's like I mean, you, you know, share about, you I just know, know that. Wayne Shorter's like it's been every time a major jazz figure dies, I think of what's gonna happen. What am I gonna feel like when Wayne Shorter dies? You know, everything I was like, oh well, I'm I'm gonna post this thing or do play a tune of his or, or do something like that, and then it happened, and I was like, I just kind of don't want to do anything. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, you know, it was just like, wow, that's a drag. I mean, you know, it's like there's a part of of 
of that musical history, our, our, our excitement that was always there when, you know, Wayne Shorter is still walking the planet. You know, like that, that music is, is that much more palpable. It's that much more real. And then, you know, it, it hasn't entered that myth category yet where it's, it's, it's already a myth. Like, how the hell did he think of all that stuff? And then now that he's like actually physically not here, like, you know, I've, I never really got to play with Wayne, but I definitely got to be in the same room with him a few times. And just like, it's like, yeah, you can shake his hand and you feel what the inside of Wayne Shorter's hand feels like that wrote down all that music. And it's just like, okay, it's real, you know? And, and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's kind of, now it's entered that state where it's like, man, Wayne is not here anymore, right? But we still have music, but it's just a, it's a different thing. And yeah, he's like by far the most influential composer to most people but for sure to me um Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i was just learning a tune of his the other day sydney you know this tune from uh kelly great and when kelly record it's kind of like a lost wayne shorter tune and Mm -hmm. i've never heard anyone play it and so i finally wrote it out which took some effort because that record the tape is so damaged that when they put it on the cd it's just it's totally warped sounding especially that track and so, and Lee Morgan is kind of out of tune in general on it. It's like when he was really young. He must have been like mm-hmm. 17 at the oldest. And uh, so he's playing a little bit out of tune, plus the, the, um, the tape is all wobbly. So then the tuning mm-hmm. is just a nightmare. I'm just trying to figure out what the chord changes are. <laughs> um, but it kind of makes sense. And, and so um, I finally wrote it out. And I think we're going to, you know, I was like, shit. I want to. I want to play that tune. Even, yeah. You know, it's one of the most beautiful Wayne Shorter tunes ever. It's on a Whitten Kelly record. Yeah, it's like from 1958. Uh, it's on Kelly. Oh, wow. It's the last tune on the record. 58. <clears throat> that's right before his his debut record. Yeah, I think he might have got mm-hmm. signed. Like asked to do that record because of that Wayne Kelly record. Wow. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah, but it's wow. like the last song on Wayne Kelly's album, and you can just hear like. There is nothing that sounds like that at that time. And there's a lot of stuff like that. I mean, that, you know, you think of that was recorded before Kind of Blue or at the same time. It's like, man, there was so much music going around that we that wasn't as popular, you know, or didn't, didn't have such a hit record. Like, that's what makes Kind of Blue so special. It's like this record. Like, there's so much music all these rock bands were doing but and, and including Pink Floyd themselves and this record was just like it was just beyond you know it was just a magical moment like concept record and Kind of Blue is kind of like that and it's it's not like a you can't break it down as, as far as as many places like of, as being a concept record because they recorded a bunch of other music at the same time and you know but when you put those songs together it has that almost like it's a concept record you know like modal modal tunes yeah, it's a little bit different, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> wow. No, I'm just going back to that that earlier thing you were saying about Roger Waters and and uh, referencing kind of blue. And even though he was talking about referencing a particular change, a particular chord, in that same vein of what you're bringing about, about it being a concept record, I, I'm sure maybe even subconsciously that was a... A point of reference for that too because it does feel like 
you you listen to kind of blue from beginning to end it's just it's a story it yeah. ha- it just feels that way it just feels like you start here you end there like you don't really start with all blues or <laughs> start with right you right know, uh, yeah you, it needs to start with that whatever. intro that that so what intro it's got to start <clears throat> exactly exactly and end with uh with flamenco sketches right mm-hmm. just, and it, it just it has to have that arc so funny enough that he would reference that album because that parallel that you just drew yeah you know, and that makes sense i mean yeah i mean i think those they were they were thinking about their favorite music i'm sure whenever they were writing yeah and and that i can see how that album just sounded different to everybody at the time and, and mm-hmm. yeah everybody was checking out kind of blue it, um, it had an influence, even if you didn't realize it until, you know, 10 years later and you're in the studio right. and you're like, oh, that chord, you know? Yep. <laughs> exactly. What can I use instead of a B7? Like what? And, and without even knowing, he doesn't talk about it harmonically at all. He, it's, it's like he's talking about it like, oh, I just took this chord and just threw it in there. But the reason why it works is because it's still, it actually does function as the, the, the five in that key. It's just a different bass note. And so I don't even know if he realized that or or if he did, but he definitely didn't. When I saw it, you're talking about Richard Wright, the piano player. Uh, yeah. He doesn't say it. He just says like, oh, it sounded good there. Instead of playing a, a, a five, I played this chord. And, but, it, but it is still a five. <laughs> That's why it works. I mean, if he had played it a half step below, it, it, it wouldn't have. So, mm-hmm. yeah, or if he had used the E flat seven instead of the the D seven, so mm-hmm. yeah, just kind of things like that. It might have just been a crazy coincidence that it just subbed for the five and and it worked the first place he threw it in. Um, but yeah, it's it's really hip. It is. It is. I, love <clears throat> I mean, because that that, that chord doesn't really get used in in rock until like Hendrix with you know like Purple Haze, you know. Mm. I mean, he plays it in E flat, so it, then it is an E flat because uh, he's playing it as as an E seven chord on the guitar, but his guitar is tuned down a half step, so then it sounds like an E flat. But yeah, that's the purple haze chord too, E seven sharp nine. <laughs> okay, I, I I totally have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, this is such a an amazing conversation. I mean, you just took it places I was not expecting, you know, in nice. the best ways. Yeah, um, it's it's weird. I, I I never really analytically looked at this record because it was it was before my jazz days and it was it was before I could really hear what stuff was going on, but it it's still it has like an an emotional effect on me, you know. Mm. And and it's kind of the part of the reason I started playing music. Where can folks find you and where can, what do you, um, what do you got coming up? My website's just my name, mikemoreno.com. Uh, Instagram is like moremike78. And um, yeah, I mean, this, like, what is coming up? Um, I'm just doing a, I, I guess I go to Europe next month with with uh, my band. We're just doing a few gigs there. Um, yeah, but that's the, kind of like the next immediate thing that's on on the horizon. Um, nice. Yeah, and we just did, you know, that Standards from Film album. So that's out. That's on um, all the various platforms. Because that's a crisscross album. So, uh, like, I let them put it up wherever. Uh, or they 
they don't even ask me. They just put it up. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's out. And uh, but the website has all the all the stuff there, you know. MikeMoreno.com. <laughs> yes, yes. Mike, this was amazing. You, I mean, Ed, this was such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, for thanks time. for asking me. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Okay. Milestones with Angelica Wiener is a production of WBGO Studios. Theme music produced by Riley K. Glasper. Recorded at Teal Octopus in Brooklyn. Episode co-producer, Corey Goldberg. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.